0: Alright, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Love it when we have an opportunity to go through some of the basics of the Christian faith. Today is going to be one of those opportunities, one of those times. Do a little bit of basic hermeneutics. Deal with that nagging, dumb claim that Christians are guilty of circular reasoning. How do you know the Bible's true because the Bible says that it's true? How do you know the Bible's God's word because the Bible said it's God's word? See that's uh, circular logic. You biblicists out there. <laughs> We're going to talk about that today too. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith and my name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And as Spurgeon said, uh, discernment doesn't involve knowing right from wrong. It involves knowing right from almost right. So what do we do here? We take the, uh, the words of Paul very seriously. We take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Believe me, there's a lot of ideas out there running around that are contrary to scripture, contrary to sound doctrine, they sound so wise, so loving, so new, so progressive. And they're wrong. <laughs> what do we work from? We work from the basic concept of sola scriptura that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Now, I don't base that upon just some Lutheran con- concocted theological statement. I actually base that upon Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit about uh, something that tall skinny Kiwi emergent guy wrote and uh, we'll, we'll we'll address that as we address uh, a few other issues today. In fact, we've We've got so much on our plate. I told you this was going to be a busy week. Heresy season is in full swing. So your 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 doctrine doesn't have that new car smell. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, my doctrine if if I were to have if my doctrine were to have that new car smell, they would have to sell it as like a, a scent that you can purchase, you know, at the at the uh the car wash, you know? So no <laughs> My, let's just put it this way: the theology I subscribe to is as well worn as a nice old baseball mitt. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm talking about? It, it, it's as comfortable as a as a as a broken in old shoe. And I, I wouldn't. I, I have both of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, and I wouldn't trade it for anything nouveau. You know, we don't need to. Inv- inv- we don't need to waste our time on experimental theology. There is no such thing, okay? You don't get to experiment with theology. We get to pass the faith along. Anyway, today we're going to do a little bit of listener email. I wish I could do more today, but uh, I, I think that uh, what we're going to uh, talk about kind of preempts that. Um, I've got a uh, important uh, news story that I'm going to be uh, reading today, and I'll, I'll just call the headline this: "Adopt same-sex marriage or die." And no, and, and this is not hyperbole. It's a story coming out of uh, Africa and the European Union. There's a uh, nation in Africa. I think it's Nigeria. Here, let me check my notes. Um, uh, yeah Nigeria. Nigeria voted against gay rights, and there are some in the European Union that in government, in government positions within the European Union that are calling off cutting off aid to Nigeria as a result of it and keep something in mind. Nigeria depends heavily on uh, foreign aid, and if they were to do that, it would literally mean the deaths of people, so that just shows you just how tolerant or intolerant, the so-called tolerant homosexual lobby is. Um, we're going to ask her the question, does 1 Corinthians chapter 14 prove that churches must be seeker-sensitive? Uh, well, Rick Warren says that, as well as Cole Phillips. And uh, we're going to talk more on Tony Jones' denial of original sin. This is where we're going to spend a lot of time today. And uh, this one has some really interesting facets. And just by way of a little bit of a, of a preview uh in the past nailing down emergent thought has been like nailing jello to a wall because the emergent guys have engaged in conversations and asked a lot of questions and really not arrived in anything well this uh this year is a little bit different tony jones uh, the former uh national director of the directorless leaderless network of the emergent uh village um he's got a blog at beliefnet and uh He's uh, he's broken with the emergent tradition of being jello like, and actually putting forth some very clear positions that he holds, um, which gives you a target to hit, and uh, it's very educational. It's a very important, uh, a very important topic, especially as it pertains to his handling of God's word, and we're going to talk about that some more today because he's uh, he's added more to his blog on the topic. We will look at Mark chapter Five, Part two, and I want to play uh, some audio from Ted Haggard's appearance on Oprah yesterday. And uh, let me tell you if you're if you're hoping that the thing that I'm going to do with Ted Haggard is to uh, chop his head off and stick it on a pole and say how bad homosexuals are, um, that's really not the angle we're going to work from. The angle we're going to work from is that we're all sinners. me included, okay? And uh, there were some things on uh, on that uh, Oprah appearance that I think should we should consider humbly concerning our own state and our own sin, and something very important as it pertains to the gospel. So um, uh, I'm I'm interested to play it in that light, you know. So um, believe me when I tell you, um, my position regarding myself in regards to Ted Haggard is I am a sinner. And believe me when I tell you, I commit enough sin on a daily basis to send myself to hell. So the last thing I need to do is be basically uh, acting like I'm holier than Ted Haggard because I don't have I don't deal with that particular sin. That's not how we're going to handle this. We're going to handle this as a, from the position of we are all sinners. And I liked some of the things that he said in light of God's mercy and basically confessing his behavior as a sin. It was very interesting. So uh, we'll play that today also at the tail end of the program. So without any further ado, again, I apologize. I wish I could do a little bit more uh, listener email today, but that's not going to happen. I got an email from Andrew uh, Deloach. He's our good friend attorney, uh, Andrew. And uh, uh, apparently this is a cathartic kind of email. (laughs) Hey, Rose Bowl. uh, Yeah. All right. He says, okay, that's it. I can't stand it anymore. I, like many of your emailers, have been fed up for some time with the swill we hear coming from the seeker purpose pastors. But after listening to leadership coach Scott Hodge's lecture about certain leaders in uncertain times, I've literally had enough. I was listening immediately after appearing in court this morning, and since I didn't get to yell at... (laughs) I told you this is a cathartic email. Uh, Andrew, um, got to tell you, you know, got to be careful here. I I, want to help you out here. I don't want people thinking that you're not a good Christ follower. You know, (laughs) Uh, he says, uh, since I didn't get to yell at any in, uh, incompetent lawyers, I let loose on Scott, Hodge, on Scott Hodge while I was driving. I have now reached the point where I am beyond fed up. I am literally sick and want to do something about it. If I have to fly to Aurora, Illinois and stand up and speak out in the middle of Scott Hodge's next leadership seminar, actually we're calling them sermonars you know, be, because they're supposed to be sermons, but they actually be se- uh, seminar content. What is it with preaching from the pulpit, leadership principles? I just don't get it. Anyway, he says if I have to, you know, fly to Aurora, Illinois, and stand up and speak out in the middle of Scott Hodge's next leadership seminar, I will do it. Speaking of leadership principles, listen to this quote. Quote, by the time executives get married, take on a mortgage, raise kids, cope with the crabgrass, climb the corporate ladder, do their best to manage their career pressures, build their net worth, and get into their 40s, they've lost touch with what they believe in and care about most deeply. Well, that's depressing. (laughs) Hmm. It sounds like Scott Hodge, right? Well, it isn't. It's Alan Cox, CEO, coach, and author of your inner CEO. Well, that sounds like a biblical book. I mean, I mean, why can't we preach from that book? Your inner CEO. I mean, the, yesterday we had that pastor preaching about your inner child and about the about you having a womb, a, some kind of a spiritual womb within you for God to plant visions and dreams in, so that you can be pregnant with. why that. that was. I'm uncomfortable with that language still. All right. Uh, anyways, coming back to uh, Andrew's email. Great email, by the way, uh, Andrew. It says, well, it isn't. It's Alan Cox, CEO, coach, uh, CEO, coach, and author of Your Inner CEO, Unleash the Executive Within. And that quote is the way I see it, number 296 on my Starbucks cup today. Do <laughs> you read those things? I can't remember the last time I actually read one of the quotes on a, on a Starbucks cup. I think I really think the last time I I literally read one was when uh, I noticed that I got one that had Rick Warren on it, you know, talking about something about purpose. Oh man, he says so. I, <laughs> so I asked, why would I go to quote Pastor Scott Hodges to hear leadership principles for uncertain times when I can go to a professional leadership coach like Alan Cox? That is a great question. am I, I, I've been pointing out at the Museum of Idolatry that these uh, purpose driven goat herders that they don't have uh they don't have degrees in marriage and family counseling they don't have degrees in sex therapy they don't have degrees as financial advisors they don't have degrees in leadership and they don't have MBAs some a lot of them don't even have more than high school education okay but but because they have numerically growing churches they are the masters of the universe. They are the people that we've got to emulate. Yet, if, if if it was required that you have actual training and a licensing to be able to do group therapy on these things, none of them would be qualified. In fact, we could sue them for malpractice. <sighs> Andrew, you're an attorney. Can you work something up on that one? <laughs> let's let's uh, let's uh, just fire off a letter. You know, saying that you're considering uh, filing a malpractice suit for uh, for practicing, you know, basically teaching leadership principles without a degree in it. Or uh, you're an unlicensed CEO kind of thing. Eh, I don't know. Just make it legalese and it would work really well. So, <laughs> by the way, uh, Andrew has a, uh, a, a show that appears here on uh, Pirate Christian Radio. It's called Take the Stand. It's uh, Tuesdays. At nine a.m. Pacific, and uh, again, he's got a he's got a better radio voice than I do. Anyway, um, I've got radio voice envy regarding Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's educated. He's educated. Yeah. Well, he, well, this well, I, you have to have a master's degree to practice law, and so I mean, I have a master's degree in business administration. He has a master's degree in 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 the law. So
1: for 3 years for law school I think.
0: Yeah, I only had to go 2, so yeah, he's smarter than I am. <laughs> Disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let me continue with this point. He says when people are sick and need care they go to a doctor. Right? He says when people have a legal dispute and need representation they see a lawyer. Well, I thought they just went to legal zoom nowadays. <laughs> Represent yourself kit. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, I'm kidding. But he's right. He says when you, need, you have a legal dispute and you need representation, they see a lawyer. My contact info is attached below. <laughs> That's right. If you all need uh, good representation from a good Christian man who understands things, uh, you, can, uh, you can contact uh, Andrew... DeLoach, Esquire, attorney at law, 215 North 2nd Avenue, Suite F, Upland, California, (laughs) 91786. And if you'd like to call him, you can do so at 909-983-5600. And yes, that is official contact information. (laughs) just want to get that plug in there for you, Andrew. Anyways, (laughs) he says, when people need to learn about leadership principles, they go to a seminar with a professional like Alan Cox. If you had a broken arm, would you go see a nutritionist to learn about healthy eating and vitamin supplements? No, you go to the doctor and get a cast put on your arm. Scott Hodges and Steven Ferdict and Perry Noble and Chris Swanson and Paul Worth, etc., is prescribing vitamins for a broken arm. Ouch, he's right. Good point. He is committing malpractice. That was see, we're on the same wavelength. He's committing malpractice and his congregation are the victims. Why is it so difficult to do the job of a pastor and preach the gospel? They don't believe the gospel's capable of doing what the gospel says it's capable of doing. They think they have to help God out. You know, I was talking to uh, my pastor. I had lunch with Pastor Hodel this this afternoon. We were went down to the Dana Point Harbor. And by the way, it was in the uh, mid-70s. Beautiful, sunny day. I know those. So there's a few listeners who uh, have been impacted by the ice storms and the cold weather that has hit basically the Midwest all the way to the eastern seaboard. And believe me, you are in my prayers. I was praying for you while I was enjoying <laughs> my lunch at the Dana Point Harbor. <sighs> that was mean, wasn't it? <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, you're not exactly uh, breaking the icicles off your roof. Nah, no, no. That, the, the, I think that day is coming, though. I think God's going to punish me for what I've just done. The only kind of sickles you worry about are bicycles on the street. Right, because, exactly. Because the kids are out riding. Correct. You, John, you know me too well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point that I was making is, is that uh, we were talking about the job of a pastor really isn't hard. Why? Because the pastors have been instructed to, get this, preach the word. Do you know that if a pastor doesn't have a sermon prepared, let's say something comes up that in the Missouri Synod, you know, that uh, they, they encourage them to have a sermon kind of written out ahead of time that an elder can present. And you know, what Pastor Hodel says, why would I need to do that? I could just call up one of the elders of the church and say, open up the book of Galatians and read the six chapters. <laughs> it would take about 10, 15 minutes, about the time of a homily, Right. You don't even have to do commentary on it. That would actually count as a sermon, just reading God's word. Did you know that? Sounds amazing, doesn't it? Wow. God's word. So in other words, about the you know, about the only real skill necessary for a pastor, as far as his pulpit uh, duties are concerned, is the ability to read. I'm, I kid you not. I would rather have a pastor who had no originality, no ability to be creative, who just struggled at writing sermons, and so his solution every Sunday was, well, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to read the next six chapters of the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? That would be more beneficial, more edifying. <laughs> I would hear more gospel than than we do in any of these seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven churches. Okay. Yeah, because these guys don't actually preach the word. What they do is they start with their their outline from what relevant topic they've chosen that day, you know, from the, you know, how to make suburban life in America more comfortable, you know, making sure that you have a hot, steamy bed with your wife, making sure that you have obedient children, that you are out of credit card debt and balancing your checkbook. And, uh, and you know, making sure that you're not spending more than you're taking in, making sure that you have a fulfilling career, making sure that you're applying leadership principles so that you can be a better leader. Uh, yeah. We don't need any of that. We just need God's word. And the job of a pastor is to, uh, let me see, um, preach the word. There's, there's Matt. <laughs>
2: can't,
0: can't, I can't seem to you know, have to worry about it. Y'all, y'all hear my dog, Max. We're recording today from my home. So, <laughs> Max, I think here's the postman. Anyway, also, so also to, to shepherd the flock. Oh yeah, sh- oh, the, no, we don't do that anymore. Even I mean, why would you want to shepherd God's flock, right? Uh, you can't shepherd God's flock anymore because these guys are not interested in shepherding. They, yeah. It, by the way, the whole. I, remember Perry Noble saying he doesn't want to go to Denny's and have uh, meals with people that he's not comfortable with. And I made the point that my pastor from time- – did you know that lunch with my pastor basically started with, hey, Chris, what are you doing this week? Uh, you know, Pastor, I'm glad you asked. He said, want to go to lunch? I'd be happy to. <laughs> so apparently my pastor loves me enough t- to go out to lunch with me, even though he might be uncomfortable with me. <laughs> anyway. All right. Hang on a second here. We're going to move along. Um, Joshua writes – by the way, that was a great e- email, Andrew – All right, uh, we got another email from Joshua Swisher. He says, uh, hey, Chris, I heard your show where you played the tribal service from the Star Ministries. Oh, man, he says he used to have a, a, one of their CDs. And he says the phrase the lady repeated at the beginning that you were wondering about, my deep calls out to your deep Jesus, is something mangled from the scripture. It's uh, from Psalm 42. Verse 7, he says, check it out. All right, so we got to go online here. Let me get onto my computerized Bible and we will look up Psalm 42. Well, reading it out of context, it says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Okay. Um, I think this is one of those times when um, context might help out here. Just remember the three, one of the three important rules for understanding God's word and properly interpreting it. And those are context, context, and context. So, wow, this is weird. All right, so let me read this in context. Psalm chapter 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while I, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude of keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, that's a great psalm. But, you're, yeah, Joshua, you're right. That's completely uh, a mangling of Psalm 42. It, it, just, again, a good hermeneutical principle is don't just read a verse. Now that doesn't mean that if you quote a verse that you're necessarily twisting what that verse says, but before you start spouting off and saying what that verse means, make sure you understand the context of what that verse, of that that verse appears in so that when you're teaching what God, God's word says, you're getting the gist of what it is that the Holy spirit was trying to communicate to us by using human language. And that, tribal lady quoting my deep calls out to your deep jesus that definitely was bizarre i that was a creepy video that was one i i don't want to play it again because it kind of weirded me out <laughs> all right okay let me come to this next one uh, this is a news story and i'll quote uh i'll I'm gonna quote I'm going to actually uh, link to this over at FightingForTheFaith.com. So if you want to uh, see the this article, you oh, you want me? To, oh, you want me to play the uh, the, n- the news play, music? Play
1: the music, yeah. Oh yeah, hang on, hang on. The, it's a news story. You got yeah. news music.
0: All right, you're right. Okay, all right. Let's play the vintage news music. Here we go. All right, here's the news <clears throat> from LifeSiteNews.com. Stop foreign aid to Nigeria for banning gay marriage, European Union's uh, European Union's homosexual right group, rights group says. All right, this is... Uh, Dateline is from Brussels, January 21st, 2009. Here's what it says. The European... All right, I'm going to have to try this. Don't say European Union fast. It doesn't come out right. All right. The European Union's intergroup on gay rights has demanded that all foreign aid to Nigeria be suspended after that country 's House of Representatives voted to prohibit attempts to create legal gay marriage okay that sentence alone pretty much says it all let 's talk about what the implications are Nigeria literally is is one of africa 's most populous countries, and they have a high uh, rate of, of uh, A- HIV-AIDS, infant mor- mortality, infectious diseases uh, such as typhoid fever, malaria, and yellow fever, um, meningitis. And basically, the, the Nigeria struggles against widespread poverty and environmental degradation, and they are highly dependent upon aid from the U.S. and from other countries. Okay? In other words... Literally, you have the European Union's intergroup on gay rights basically saying, you guys allow gay marriage or we're going to kill you. We're going to let you die. Okay? We're going to embargo you. We're not going to help you. And who cares if you guys die, if your poverty gets worse or whatever. Cut off all aid because of the homosexual marriage issue. That is just outrageous. And tell me, I thought the homosexual lobby was all about tolerance, right? Yet they're being really intolerant. I mean, when was the last time you heard a Christian group basically saying, you know, you homosexuals, we're going to basically cut you off from the economy, make you live in squalor and make sure that no one's going to help you and make it so that you die because of your sins. I mean, if James Dobson did something like that, the, the world would be in an uproar, right? Oh, yes. Okay. So um, I'm bringing this to your attention because I think we need to be in an uproar about the fact that these gay rights people are basically calling for the death of these Nigerians and cutting off their aid because they refuse to bend the knee on the issue of homosexual marriage. Isn't that what that is?
1: It sounds like it.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I'll link to this uh, news story at fightingforthefaith.com because this this is the kind of news story that needs to get out. Because, you know, the homosexual lobby now is just so tolerant. Yeah. Legalize gay marriage or we're going to cut off your funding and we'll just let you all die and rot and go to hell. Yeah, that's... that that <laughs> They're so kind, so tolerant, so loving sounds pretty militant doesn't it you think yeah yeah so anyway we're going to take our first break and uh when we come back we are going to answer the question um does first corinthians chapter 14 prove that christians must be seeker sensitive Uh, apparently cole phillips we we played his uh his latest uh video promo for his upcoming uh Rock of Love at the Connection Church, you know, uh, video yesterday, and uh, he on his blog he's basically saying that First uh, Corinthians fourteen proves that we, we don't we need to be seeker sensitive, you know, and so we'll talk about that, and then we're going to spend uh, some time uh, talking more about Tony Jones's denial of original sin. We're going to talk a little bit more about his hermeneutic and his treating of Scripture, and again, you know, I told John earlier, this is a momentous day because the emergent guys have turned off the Klingon cloaking device and have actually given us a target. The church that refused to give us a doctrinal statement is actually giving us some doctrinal statements, which is... uh, I consider a momentous day, but again, then again, I'm not really shocked by their positions that they're coming out with, because you could connect the dots pretty easy with these guys a long time ago. But of course, I was considered unloving, unkind, and judgmental for saying the things that I said. Anyway, we'll be <laughs> we'll be right back. Uh, if you would like to uh, email me, you could do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com Stay with stay with us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
3: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the octagon. It's called Rex Kwon Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now, fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
4: Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200 proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com.
0: All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. We've got a loaded program today. So does 1 Corinthians 14 teach us that we have to plan our services around the needs of unbelievers? Well, that's what Cole Phillips is arguing. We'll get to that in a minute. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio. If you are benefiting from this program, you are learning how to think biblically, how to think biblically critically, learning sound doctrine, learning how to defend the Christian faith, we need you to support us. We don't actually have a high overhead. We keep our uh, expenses really reasonable, actually, but still we have them nonetheless. And uh, we need your support, and you can do that a couple of different ways. One, you can log on to FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the Donate button. That allows you to pay by via credit card, and uh, that's a wonderful, quick, easy self, uh, quick gratification way of doing it. And if you're like me, you like to write a check so that you have that paper trail, uh, you can make the check out to Fighting For The Faith, Post Office Box 791-SJC, California two Six nine three. All right, moving along, uh, I got a uh, blog entry here from Cole Phillips, who is, like I said, my research shows that he's one of the leaders in the purpose-driven movement, so much so that he's actually helped churches transition from being boring traditional churches where people actually read the Word of God and stuff like that into hip-relevant, seeker-sensitive churches where uh, they, they give seekers what they want and what they need rather than Feeding sheep, they uh, they herd goats. So uh, here's what uh, Cole Phillips says he, uh, on his January 20th blog entry ca- called "Examining the Seeker Rude Movement." Apparently, if you don't, if you're not purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, and you you have a church that, uh, well, you know, preaches the word of God rather than entertains goats, you know, feeds God's sheep, then you have what's called a seeker rude church. Here's what he says, I've just heard a respected theologian critiquing the seeker-sensitive movement, and I thought I could speak into this to bring some clarity. One of the points was that we don't use the term seeker-sensitive anymore. That's a very old-school phrase because it's not a good description of what effective churches are doing. Effective churches being defined as those that are experiencing uh, numerical growth. If your church isn't experiencing numerical growth, then you're just not effective. God isn't blessing your ministry. That's what these guys assume and their assumptions are wrong. There are some churches, Cole continues, that are seeker-driven, oh, <laughs> like that one, it's, we might have to adopt that term, seeker-driven, that, that's kind of a combination of seeker-sensitive and purpose-driven, they're now seeker-driven, where the number one question they ask is, what will a seeker think about this? <laughs> okay, just got to stop for a second, listen to this. Okay, the number one question a seeker-driven church is going to ask is, uh, "What will a seeker thi- a seeker think about this?" Isn't the better question of, if, "Am I doing what God has called me to do?" And that is to, oh yeah, preach the word anyway. Um, and in the process, they throw out anything that's offensive. Okay, so you got the seeker-sensitive churches that, that throw out, the, you know. It, <clears throat> And they throw out anything offensive. These churches are obviously missing the mark. Well, I'm sorry, seeker, seeker-driven churches that aren't preaching the word—they're the ones missing the mark, regardless of whether or not their first drive is to to for the seeker or not. He says, but there are lots of churches that are seeker rude. Did you know that? If you attend a traditional church, if you attend a church that does the liturgy, you know, maybe lights a candle um praise the lord's prayer maybe has you stand up or sit down or kneel or where the pastor opens up god's word and and um does basically works on the premise of that when we gather together as the church that uh, his job is to be a pastor and to feed god's sheep with god's word okay that's uh, seeker rude he says where they say we don't really care what anyone thinks about what we're doing, we're just going to do things the way that we're comfortable with and do whatever is easiest for us. That's seeker rude. No, that's a straw man. That's a straw man. I'm sorry, but a a church where the pastor actually does biblically what, what the word calls him to do, what God has called him to do, and that's preach the word, that has nothing to do with what we're comfortable with or whatever's easiest for us. It's called being faithful to the job description given in Scripture for what pastors are supposed to do. That's not seeker rude. By the way, there is no such thing as a seeker. Ay-ay-ay. I just want to make sure you understand. In fact, one of the things that I thought, I thought that was funny from the Innovation 3 conference, one of the speakers, according to the notes that I read from Tony Morgan and Ed Stetzer, is that uh, there, was a, there was a speaker who said that, that, that we're, we're moving beyond that. We're now post-seeker. Apparently, we've moved beyond the seeker. Sen- you know, we're no longer in a time when it's we should talk about being seeker sensitive because we're in a post seeker market now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wish I was making this up. Anyway, hang on a second here. Um, let me go to Romans chapter three. Okay, let's come back to this <clears throat> this idea of a seeker. Let's see here what the Bible says about seekers. Let's see, what then, verse, chapter 3, verse 9 of Romans, what then, are, are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Uh, keep that verse in mind as we get into our discussion on original sin regarding Tony Jones and the things he's saying. It says that we are all under sin, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, biblically, there's no such thing as a seeker-sensitive church because there's no one who seeks God. Not even one. Sorry, but what these guys have done is they've tried to turn the church service I- I- into evangelism. So what we're going to do is we're going to cater to the whims, desires, and wants of the so-called seeker, so that we can draw a crowd, and and then we'll uh, try to hit them with the gospel. You know, as a way of consider that to be evangelism. So the idea here is is that we want to ha- we want to create a church service. Uh, that isn't rude to seekers and that will that will take their special needs into consideration that's not what church is for we we, when i was growing up we used to call it evangelism what you would do the church would gather together hear god's word receive the sacraments Uh, And, you know, the, the focus was, you know, of the shepherd was to feed the sheep, the sheep would go out into the world, and they would carry the gospel message with them, and engage in evangelism, invite friends and things like that, who would hear the word of God, cry God, would give them faith, they would, you know, that's how this is all supposed to work. But uh, we don't do that anymore. So what we do is we create these mega churches where they they can get pop psychology and self-help and the latest tips on how to have a better life. And wouldn't you know it, non-Christians are eating this stuff up. Wow, we've never had a church like this because it's not church. Anyway. So anyway, Cole Phillips continues. He says, when a guest comes to your house, you act a little different than usual. You probably don't eat in your underwear, burp loudly. You probably pick up around the house and think a little more about what's on TV, that sort of thing. Um, uh, this metaphor kind of breaks down um, because I can't think of a single church that I know of where the pastor is actually preaching God's word that encourages people to come to church in their underwear, burp loudly, and be rude. Um, hmm. Anyway, so a seeker-sensitive church is one that considers the needs of the unchurched. Listen to the sentence. A seeker-sensitive church is the one that considers the needs of the unchurched. Well, according to the Bible, what the unchurched need, they're unbelievers, are to hear the law preached so that their sins are exposed and they understand their need of a Savior, and they need to hear the gospel so that they would repent and trust in Christ for their salvation. Didn't Jesus say that he came to seek and save the lost Oh, yeah. oh! wait a second, <laughs> you know what, that reminds me. If that being the case, Jesus saying that he came to seek and save the lost, Jesus is actually the only seeker. Um, so a seeker-sensitive church would be one that exalts the one true seeker, that would be Christ. Huh. Anyway, he says... That's why the church should do—that's uh, that that's what the church should do. It should be courteous of outsiders. Can you name a church that is purposely rude to outsiders? In fact, Paul talks about this throughout 1 Corinthians 14. He says, check it out for yourselves and see how Paul says that we should consider the needs of others and not just plan our services for our own people. Okay he said (laughs) okay listen to that again he he, cole phillips is saying that first corinthians chapter 14 teaches us that that we should not just plan our church services for our own people that is an outright lie and uh let's turn to uh first corinthians chapter 14 which by the way um we covered this chapter pretty well um, a little over a week ago. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is the abuse of the gift of tongues. And uh, we went over this pretty extensively because the argument actually begins earlier in the book in chapter 12. And so chapter 14 kind of picks up on the fact that the Corinthian church was abusing the gift of tongues. Okay? This is not about whether or not you're planning your church services in such a way that you are considering the needs of the unchurched. The, chapter 14 has to do with the fact that you are abusing God's word and that you are supposed to be exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a way that the body of Christ is edified. And the body of Christ is not edified when somebody is speaking in tongues and there is no interpreter. That's really what's going on here. This isn't about whether or not you're being rude to the unchurched, and they define being rude as preaching God's word, having in-depth Bible study, you know, stuff that's not practical or relevant to the unchurched. Okay, keep in mind, that's what he's talking about here. So let's read First uh, Corinthians 14. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. All right, already First Corinthians chapter 14 is about... Uh, pursuing spiritual gifts and specifically pursuing those that build up the body <clears throat> the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church real quick here um let me see so was the corinthian church planning their church services in such a way that only their own people were being edified uh, that's not even remotely the argument in this passage and this folks is one of the reasons why whenever somebody quotes the scripture you need to look it up read it in context and ask yourself what is the issue being addressed and what is it the the holy spirit was trying to communicate in this passage All right, so so nothing here about... See, it's not like the the Corinthian church was only setting up their services in such a way that that only the needs of their people were being taken care of. No, they were getting drunk on the communion wine. They were abusing the gift of tongues. Their body wasn't being edified because they weren't exercising the gifts properly. They were being... They weren't even meeting the needs of the people in their own church because they were abusing things. Anyway, it says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, and the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, I want you to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church might be built up. Okay, notice here, Paul is is literally advocating... The building up of the church, not seekers, not the unchurched, not unbelievers, but the building up of the church through the proper application and use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and saying that if you're going to speak in tongues, you need to have an interpreter. We continue now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So you yourselves, if if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You know, it's funny when you that's the second time Paul has made this point about the fact that the gifts are to be used to build up the church. Huh? It makes it sound like Paul is really not interested In planning a church service in such a way that the unchurched are, in their particular special needs, are being addressed. No. At church, it's for building up of, oh yeah, the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. what, What am I to do if I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? (laughs) So you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, uh, folks, I think you get the gist of what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 14 has nothing to do with whether or not we should have a seeker sensitive service or whether or not we're being seeker rude. Paul's through, really, the, Apostle, on the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is teaching us uh, that what should be happening in church is that people are exercising their gifts in a way that builds up the body of Christ. And how's that done? Oh yeah, through words, such as the Word of God. Anyway, so the, these seeker-sensitive guys, like, I'm sorry, seeker-driven guys like Cole Phillips, Um, They're wrong when they quote 1 Corinthians 14. It does not teach us that we need to plan our church services in such a way that we take take into consideration the needs of people who are not Christians. The whole point is building up the body of Christ. That's what we do at church. We don't build up the unchurch by giving them self-help and and tips on how to live their lives and practical, relevant information that that is useful for them. (sighs) Man, I tell you. How is it that we've gotten so far away from the Word of God? All right, we are going to switch gears here, and this next segment is going to take us into the next hour as well. We'll we'll make our break here at the the top of the hour. But um, Tony Jones has continued uh, his series on original sin, and this next installment, he's uh, talking about the book of Genesis, is very interesting, very interesting. And, you know, again, this is a monumental day, this... Thank God this day has finally come that the emergence, uh, like Tony Jones, and which, by the way, I read his book, The New Christians. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the Christians he describes are not new Christians. That's the like the old heretics. Anyway, um, Tony Jones uh, is actually decloaking and giving us something of an emergent uh, doctrinal statement, theological position, if you would, and he's come down. As an emergent against the doctrine of original sin, okay? Which puts him in the camp of the Pelagians. Um, But, you know, we won't quibble about the fact that the Pelagian heresy is a heresy. But instead, we're going to listen here. I'm going to read his latest installment regarding Genesis. And I want you to pay real close attention to his concluding remarks regarding his hermeneutic as an interpretation of the opening uh, section of the book of Genesis. Tony Jones, he says, let me start with some throat clearing. Let me help you out there. I do that all the time. He says, at least one friend and not a few commenters were bothered by the fact that I wrote about my intuition before I started reflection on the biblical passages at at play. One friend told me as a self-proclaimed Protestant, I should begin with the Bible where Protestants always begin. Firstly, don't read too much into my decision to write about my intuition. It has something to do with the fact that I was pressed for time. Okay, so we shouldn't read into it. Secondly, I've been very clear on this point here and elsewhere. I do not think it possible to begin with the Bible. Pray tell why. He says, we always begin with our own hermeneutical assumptions. Always, no exception. A human being cannot escape his or her own hermeneutical horizon. You were encased in it just as you are encased in your own skin. There is no escape. So apparently you can't begin with the Bible because we all have hermeneutical uh, assumptions. It's kind of silly, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have hermeneutical uh, assumptions, but we'll get to those in a minute. He says, does this mean that I reject the Lutheran formula of Sola Scriptura? Well, insofar as Sola Scriptura is naive to everyone's interpretive biases, yes. Whatever. I'm sorry. That's, it sounds so smart, but it's not. He says, I don't think I can actually rely on scripture alone. I am always also reliant upon my own reason to interpret and apply scriptural truth. This this just in, Tony Jones believes in scriptural truth. Well, sort of. We'll we'll talk about that. Just a side question here. Doesn't sola mean alone? As in, all by itself with nothing else. How then can there be five solas? Is that not logically incoherent? Tony, Tony, Tony. Read, <laughs> read some books outside of this century. Go back to the writings of the reformers. They actually address that issue rather well and being a doctoral student i'm sure you can get your hands on some good books from the time of the reformation anyways he says so i might approach the bible differently than you do so be it he says so now on to genesis let's begin by looking at what the text really says all right so he's um pointing us to genesis chapter 3 Verses 1 through 24, and um, I'm going to read it from the ESV, the English Sanctified Version, um, Genesis 3. And uh, I think he he, he goes to the, a different translation, but that doesn't really matter. Here's what the passage says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, that would be Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Sounds to me like the serpent was an emergent. He knows how to use deconstructing questions. Anyway, he, <clears throat> which, by the way, that's... Notice Satan's first attack. Right off the bat, he disarms Eve by getting her to question and doubt God's word. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the trees of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So there's the there's the story. Let's see what Tony Jones does with this. Well, actually, we'll, when we get back, we will talk about what Tony Jones does with this particular story so if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program you can do so at talkback at fighting talk back at fighting we will be right back
3: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
3: My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com, or the big picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible.
0: All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, Hour number two. We're in the middle of uh, doing some work on original sin. In reality, I think this uh, really has to do more with uh, Tony Jones' handling of the Bible. But we'll get to that. This is our contribution to an emergent conversation, apparently. But uh, keep in mind, I'm arrogant because apparently I'm into assertive certain statements. Um, Okay, we'll get to that, too all right uh, let 's continue with uh, tony jones 's article here. He says,, you know, so we just read Genesis chapter three verses one through twenty four and he writes now it probably won 't surprise many of uh, many for me to confess that i don 't think the creation of the cosmos really happened quite the way it is described in either this creation narrative or the one preceding it uh, already we 've uh, we 're working from a liberal assumption that we 're dealing with two different creation narratives, and no we 're not." Um, one is a synopsis, and one has more detail. That's kind of ridiculous. Uh, that's a liberal argument. He says, anyway, but my belief that the cosmos is 12 to 16 billion years old does not mean that I don't consider the Genesis account to be true. Quite to the tra- contrary, I do consider it true. Truth and factuality are not the same. So let's deal with what its with its truth. Now, <laughs> truth and actual- factuality are not the same. Okay, um... That that right there is a very strange split, and uh, we'll have to get back to that. He says, Adam and Eve are forbidden to eat the fruit of the tree of life and bidden to eat it by the serpent, uh, deceived to eat it by the serpent. Eve listens to the latter and passes the fruit on to her partner. He partakes as well. God discovers their disobedience, and they must pay the consequences. Uh, First off... Uh, First, let us note that there are a couple of catchy, catching phrases in the narrative. One is that the serpent tells Eve that the fruit will will allow her to know uh, good and evil. And Eve decides to eat the fruit in part because it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They became ashamed of their nakedness, sewed themselves fig leaf garments, and thus their choice was discovered by God. As if God didn't know. Anyway, we continue. There are all sorts of interesting interpretive points to be made, but since we're focusing on the doctrine of original sin, let's focus on the consequences of their actions. Because of their fruity indulgence, nice catchy phrase there, uh, Adam and Eve become aware and ashamed of their nakedness, and God in turn lays the smack down on them, The woman will have pain in childbirth and be subservient to the man, and the man will toil to bring food from the earth, and they are cast out of the garden, and they will both die. Okay. In the biblical account, it is surely the original sin. And I think it's clear that it is meant to be paradigmatic. That means it's supposed to be some kind of a paradigm of the human condition. Given the choice, the passage seems to teach each of us would choose the fruit that opens our eyes rather than trusting God who tells us we don't need our eyes opened. So that's the paradigm? Hmm. I would rather go with the factual part of it. Anyway, but we'll get to that. He says, but is this the original sin? That is, is there anything in the passage that says Adam and Eve might not have chosen to eat the fruit? And I'm basically going to say it doesn't matter. That's a non-sequitur, sequitur, and it's a kind of a dumb question. Or more to the point of the Western theological notion of original sin, that the consequences of their sin has been passed down to every subsequent human via the act of intercourse, thus exempting only Jesus of Nazareth from this inheritance. Is there something in the passage that would lead us to believe that, as we learned yesterday, this is an inherited spiritual disease or defect in human nature? by the way we call this an argument from silence anyway he says based upon my own hermeneutical position that this story is truthful in that it's paradigmatic as opposed to factual notice the split there who does he sound like oh yeah i remember he sounds a lot like marcus borg marcus borg had similar splits he gave it different terminology but it's Pretty much the same thing. Anyway, he says, Number two, nothing in the biblical narrative indicates that Adam and Eve were changed at the genetic level that would infect subsequent generations. So I'll conclude uh, this The account of the original sin in Genesis 3 teaches us a lot about the state of human nature, our freedom to know right from wrong, and our proclivity to not necessarily trust God, but it does not teach that the sin of Adam and Eve is responsible for the sins of subsequent generations. Now does that sound like a compelling argument to you? I mean, just because the Genesis account doesn't give us the systematic theological underpinnings of the entire doctrine of original sin that somehow we can say, well, uh, we can just rule that one out. The answer to the question is no. Okay? First of all, um I, I, we'll 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 deal with his argument from silence. Okay? Anybody who understands really good biblical hermeneutics understands this point. Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, there are different... Think of the Bible as a library, okay? Don't think of it as one book. It has multiple human authors who were all carried along and inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? So basically, the Bible wasn't written in a day by one person. It wasn't written in a particular year by one person. It was written by many authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, over a span of several thousand years. Okay, So uh, let's get that out in the open right off the bat. And there are different types of writings in the Bible. Now, one of the major attacks against people who have a literalist interpretation of the Bible is this really it's farcical idea that if you say that you take the Bible literally, that that means that you're so stupid that if you were to read in the Psalms that, 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 you know, where, where it describes God as wishing to gather his you know children like a chicken gathers her hens, that that means that you know, we must literally now think that God is a big chicken with feathers. Okay, it's an asinine statement. Nobody who believes in the historical grammatical way of interpreting Scripture is going to basically say, we have to take all passages of Scripture literally. Okay, there are passages that should be taken literally, okay, where the Bible tells a historical story, we are to understand it as a historically factual event that's being recorded in Scripture, where the Scripture is speaking poetically and artistically. We understand that poems oftentimes are are filled with metaphor and artistic imagery designed to you know, convey a truth in a different manner. Okay, there are those types of Scriptures. Then you've got some really difficult stuff to interpret, like... Um, like the apocalyptic literature. Think of the tail end of the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. Very difficult to interpret and you don't interpret it the same way that you would interpret a history, okay? You've got four biographies in the New Testament, and you've got a bunch of letters. And now this is interesting. The biographies are historical narrative. There is theology and doctrine in them that can be gleaned. There are parts of it that do that, and there are parts of it that don't. And the nice thing about the Bible is it does contain books, for instance like the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, both of which originated as letters, that do good, systematic theology and doctrine, and touch on these issues and give us the ability to interpret the narratives in a way that we understand the doctrine and theology associated with it. So that being said, when we read the Genesis account, just because the Genesis account, chapter 4 doesn't begin with, and now let's discuss the systematic theology and the doctrine pertaining to original sin and the fall of man, just because it doesn't contain that doesn't, doesn't preclude the fact that Scripture speaks on these things. Again, keep in mind, even though the Bible was written over thousands of years, it is still the work of the Holy Spirit, it is still the work of God, and where the, where the Holy Spirit has inspired other authors to speak definitively regarding the fall of man and the genesis account we cannot wipe that away we cannot ignore it and we don't act like oh well god's silent so basically what tony jones here is engaging in is an argument from silence Now, most of the time, not all of the time, arguments from silence are considered to be logical fallacies. In this particular case, this is a logical fallacy because God has spoken definitively regarding this event. Don't believe me? Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Let's take a look at what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write in regard to this event. We read... Romans chapter 5 we're going to read it in context remember context 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 Romans chapter 5 verse 6 for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved from by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Interesting. Paul here is assuming that that one time we were by nature enemies of God. Cross-reference this with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The answer is, yeah, we are by nature at war and, and objects of God's wrath. All right, we continue. So, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who would that one man be? Hmm. Let's see. Just as sin came into the world through one man. We'll see. What is Paul referring to here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12? The answer to the question is the story of Adam and Eve. What is Paul assuming here? Paul is literally assuming the factuality of the Genesis narrative regarding the fall of Adam and Eve and the deception at the hands of the serpent. If this didn't factually happen, then we have no explanation here. Paul is a, is a nut. Listen, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all of sin. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose who sinning who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type and of the one who was to come. Listen to that. Paul said that death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses. And at the time of Moses, God gave the Mosaic law. Paul here is assuming the factuality of the Genesis story. And he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We continue. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no, no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those whose sinning was not like that of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have great the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many." And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass, which brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So the one man's uh, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Pretty in, pretty straightforward, isn't it? So when you read Romans 5, understand this. Paul is arguing as if the Genesis story is factual, as if it's really It really truly happened as if Adam truly disobeyed God and through his trespass, all men were made sinners. I go back to the point that I made a few weeks ago. We should not have a view of scripture that is less than Jesus's view. And when you read the eyewitness testimony regarding Jesus Christ And his view of scripture, according to the eyewitnesses, the men who spent three years schlepping about Israel 2,000 years ago with Jesus Christ, tell us that Jesus not only believed the Old Testament stories to be true, he quoted them often and tied his own messianic mission to the events that occurred in the Old Testament. So already we've got a problem when Tony Jones is basically saying that he has a hermeneutical position that he believes that the story is truthful and that it's paradigmatic, but it's not factual. He's at odds with Jesus Christ and he's at odds with the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul and his argument here well, just because you know, Genesis doesn 't say that that there was a genetic change in human nature and da 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 that 's an argument from silence what 's funny though, is that there <laughs> in the Genesis narrative we get in the opening shots regarding the uh, the the flood narrative the the story of the flood um, Listen to this. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is interesting. I think this would count as a passage that supports the idea of original sin. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. <laughs> Let's see here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and the the very intention, inclination of the of his heart was only evil all the time. Funny that that's the case. So anyway, um, so here's the deal. Already we've got a problem. Tony Jones is basically admitting that that original sin. Uh, basically doesn't leave us in a position where we are at war with God and incapable of choosing God, incapable of fearing, loving, and trusting in God. He basically says that it's the end result is a proclivity to not necessarily trust God. That puts him into a different camp. That actually puts him into the Pelagian camp. Now, I understand that the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't subscribe to the to the Protestant view of original sin. We're not going to get into that right now. What I'm going to basically focus in on the fact is that here, Tony Jones is basically saying that, uh, that uh, it, the fall of man makes it so that there's a proclivity for man to not necessarily trust God. In other words, there's something still good left within you. Um, but he's basing this on a faulty hermeneutic. He doesn't believe in the factuality of the story. Jesus Christ did. Um, he just thinks it's paradigmatic. It's truthy. It's truthy, but it, it does. You know, and what does this do? He this puts him in the same hermeneutical camp as men like Marcus Borg. Making my point that uh, the uh, the emergent guys they are post modern liberals as opposed to modern liberals. Marcus Borg, um, John Shelby Spong, these guys would be modern liberals. The, Tony Jones, he's a post modern liberal. And already he's got a faulty way of dealing with the Word of God. Now what's, what happened is I went onto the blog and, and uh, tried to basically talk some sense into these people, and I was accused of circular reasoning, and I pointed people to my article at extremetheology.com where I pointed out that we you know that Jesus Christ was the literally Jesus Christ is the supreme authority when it comes to Uh, the word of God. There is nobody who's ever lived who will have greater credentials regarding God's word than Jesus Christ. In fact, he was the greatest expert on the scriptures who ever lived. Okay, why do I say such a thing? Well, Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than God in human flesh, and he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead. This comes to the issue now of what do we do when people accuse us, Christians, of circular logic? And this is important. A lot of people are actually guilty of it, and I want to help you so that you're not. Okay? I don't believe that the Bible's the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. That's kind of a silly circular argument. Okay? So here's, I'm going to tell you how I approach the scriptures, and I re- highly recommend that you consider this this position and consider adopting it yourself, okay? Let me, uh, and in order to demonstrate this properly, I was reading on the Tall Skinny Kiwi uh, website. Tall Skinny Kiwi is kind of an emergent guy, too, kind of is an understatement. But, um, you know, the emergents are basically rejecting the doctrine of sola scriptura, and... Um, <laughs> Their take on it is, um, they don't believe that the Bible is the foundation of our faith, but they believe that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our pay, of our faith, and you know that Jesus Christ being the second person of the Trinity, the the living and eternal Word of God, and so uh, they think that Jesus is the foundation rather than sola scriptura, and the sola sola scriptura thing. They think they can get rid of it by making such a, an argument. Well, the, the Bible is really not our foundation. Jesus Christ is. I mean, it sounds holy. It sounds pious, right? It sounds almost biblical. The point of the matter is, is that uh, let's say I'm going to take their position for a minute. Let's just say I agree. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. So now let's take a look at what Jesus said about the scriptures. Okay? That being the case, we have to approach the Bible from this point of view. Jesus really is the foundation of our faith. What do we know about Jesus? And how, where do we get information about Jesus? What he said, what he did, what he taught, what he believed? Where do we find that information? I'm going to say I agree with Tall Skinny Kiwi and the emergence that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. The answer to the question is, well, primarily what we learn about Jesus Christ is found in the New Testament biographies. And you don't have to believe that the biographies are the Word of God. We're just going to assume a couple of things here, and if we need to prove it later, we can. We're going to basically work from the assumption that the biographies in the New Testament were written by eyewitnesses to the events that are recorded within them, with the exception of the Gospel of Luke, which was compiled by interviewing the eyewitness, the eyewitnesses to the events. Okay. Matthew is clearly written by an eyewitness. John is written by an eyewitness. Even Mark is written by an eyewitness. It's, it's a little more subtle uh, because uh, what we know about it is, is that these were really the preaching notes of Peter. okay? Um, and Peter, for the most part, not being a very uh, lettered man as a fisherman. Uh, but that being the case, again, the, the internal documents, the internal evidence shows us it was written by an eyewitness. Um, so the biographies... They're just biographies. Just think of it as that to start off with. And in these biographies, we are introduced via four different authors who claim to be eyewitnesses or interview the eyewitnesses to a man named Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, we learn from these eyewitnesses, claimed to be none other than the God of the Jews in human flesh. Now, this is an interesting thing for somebody to be claiming because the God of the Jews was a very obnoxious God. If you read the Old Testament, he's obnoxious in the sense that he claims that he's the only God, whoever is, whoever was, he claims to be the only God out there, the only game in town, spiritually, so to speak, claims that, uh, he made us exclusively has the right to put demands upon us and our character and our morality. And demands worship, says that he's a jealous God, punishes idolatry, punishes sin, and uh, and and claims that there are no other ways or paths to him but uh, except for through the paths and means that he's established and set up. Okay, so Jesus Christ literally claims to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is what the New Testament or the biographers, the eyewitness biographers, tell us about Jesus. Okay. These eyewitnesses also say that Jesus Christ proved his claim to being the Yahweh of the Old Testament by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The eyewitnesses also claim that they were eyewitnesses to Jesus's bodily resurrection from the dead. So these eyewitnesses by... uh, (laughs) So you see what I'm saying here? If you basically approach the scriptures from the point of view, listen, take off the gold leaf, strip off all of that stuff, and let's just deal with the documents as documents. When we do that, we got four biographies that are pinnacle here, and in these biographies, you've got a guy claiming to be God in human flesh, the God of the Jews from the Old Testament, and he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead. And the eyewitnesses claim that they witnessed him alive after he was crucified. But literally bodily, you know, bodily raised from the dead after he was crucified and, you know, and he was dead for three days. But he comes back and there are eyewitnesses to this. So what we also then learn is that according to these eyewitnesses, these eyewitness biographers, the they The fact that Jesus claimed that the Old Testament stories were not mythology but were factual and actual events you know he quotes from the Torah he quotes from the writings he quotes from the prophets i mean he basically claims that the the story of the flood was an actual factual event he claims that uh you know Adam and Eve's children were actual factual people. Okay, that uh, Righteous Abel was killed by Cain. He affirms, he puts a stamp of approval on these stories. And he claims that all of the Old Testament writings that we have in the Masoretic text, which is also found in the LXX, so the Septuagint, are none other than the very words of God. And Jesus gives a special blessing to the writings of his disciples who then become the apostles so that their words become the word of God too. So the fact that, um, that Jesus is the foundation of our faith um, is important, but where do we learn about Jesus? We learn about that Him from the Scriptures, and it's only, only Jesus only puts his stamp of approval on the Old Testament writings and the writings of the apostles. Period, end of story. That's how we understand sola scriptura. It comes from and flows through the authority of none other than Jesus Christ. And if you want to believe that Jesus has a different view of Scripture than the one that i've stated then muster your evidence from your eyewitnesses who were there and heard what jesus said and spoke and taught and did and show me from their writings that jesus had a lesser view of scripture than that if you can't do that then if you claim to be a christian or a christ follower or whatever the current name de jure is if you have a different view of scripture than jesus does you're wrong And you're messing with fire. All right. So there you go. That's how you get around this, this, this circular argument thing. Okay? We've got four different witnesses, and their their stories jive. What they said was accurate. What they said was true. And uh, if somebody want, wants to claim to be a Christian and deny that the, the Gospels were written by the eyewitnesses, um, it's pretty clear that, uh, they don't uh, understand anything about what the Bible is and, and, uh, they're liberals and you can dismiss them as heretics anyway. So there you go. Um, so Tony Jones is engaging in an argument from silence. He's trying to maintain the truthiness of of Genesis by, de- but still deny it's, uh, it's factuality, which Jesus didn't do. The apostles didn't do. Paul didn't do, um, and yet somehow I'm supposed to believe these new emergence and their, their new Christians. This is this, they're neo liberals. They're postmodern neo liberals. Anyway. So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we're going to switch gears really quick here. And we're going to get into the gospel of Mark. Cause this is probably one of my favorite parts of the day, the gospel of Mark. And then, uh, time permitting, we'll get into, uh, what was said between Oprah Winfrey and Tad Haggard? Good stuff there, especially as it pertains to the gospel. All right, now we left off yesterday in the Gospel of Mark, uh, talking about uh, really the tail end of the story of how uh, Christ released this uh, poor guy who was in bondage, you know, possessed by the the legion of demons, and uh, and how that all how that all went down. We pick up now in Mark chapter five, verse twenty one. And I call this story, you know, you know, they have all different headings for these things. Um, I call this the, the, the story of the two daughters. And it's imperative that you, 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 you I think we look at this because you're going to see an interplay between two different daughters. And it's very interesting that goes on here. I love this story. And it really shows us, again, Jesus here is, what's he trying to get people to, to do? Trust and have faith in him. It's the dividing line between faith and unbelief that is is the big dividing line here in this gospel, and others as well. But we read, starting in verse 21 in Mark chapter 5, "...and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side," that's the Sea of Galilee, "...a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea." And then came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Okay. So we've got Jarius, one of the synagogue rulers understand, you know, what's going on here. He's a prominent guy in the synagogue. He, you can think of him as a church man, if you would. Okay. And, uh, and so keep this in mind as we move forward and a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now we're going to stop for a second here. Um, You you, got to think about this from a Jewish context, okay? Leviticus chapter 15 talks about um, things that make you clean or unclean. And um, listen to this. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at her time of, of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. This is important, okay? Now I want you to keep this in mind. Jarius is a synagogue ruler. We have a woman here who lives in the same town as Jarius, which means if she were going to go to synagogue, she would go to his synagogue, okay? And she's had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And Jairus' daughter also happens to be 12 years old. I don't think there's any real connection there, but I just think it's interesting. Okay? So, according to the Levitical law, according to the Mosaic law, this woman has been considered to be unclean for 12 years. This is severely impacted. Her interaction with people in her own community, severely interacted interacted with her ability to worship God in the synagogue. Basically, this is a woman who many would be easy to consider her to be um, somebody who's cursed by God, somebody who's done something wrong and somebody who really should be hanging out on the fringes of the of the community and not amongst the rest of the community because she is unclean and unclean is is the scarlet letter u in uh, in this society okay you got to keep this in mind all right So it says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, what's going on here? This woman knows she's unclean. She knows she is ceremonially unclean. and She has no business being in Jesus's presence. And think of the lepers earlier who did the unthinkable and came and basically, you know, right in front of Jesus is begging for him to heal him. And what does Jesus do? He touches them. Which leads to the question, is Jesus clean or unclean? Because they were unclean just a second ago, and you're not supposed to be touching these guys. Otherwise, you become unclean. Okay? So she's sneaking up. She's working from this idea. First of all, she trusts that this is going to do something. She has faith, okay, that this is going to do something. And she's still working with this idea that God is somehow punishing her, may not love her. That she's getting what she deserves. I mean, the religious types, the the self-righteous religious types, you know, have probably had their their say regarding this woman. So she knows she doesn't deserve and it's not right for her to be in Jesus's presence. And so she's going to sneak a miracle out of him. Okay? And the funny thing is, is that she has faith that this is really going to (laughs) work. And you know what happens? (laughs) She's right. Her faith pays off for she said even if i touch his garments i will be made well and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease and jesus perceiving in him that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and said who touched my garments now this is a ridiculous question okay this is a ridiculous question because already the narrative is telling us that the crowds were pressing up against him. Okay, And Jesus is stopping at this point. And understand now at this point what's going on in Jairus's mind. He knows he's only got seconds, minutes before his daughter dies. When he left the house, his daughter was at the edge of death. He's got to book it. There can be no delays. Jesus has got to put the red siren on, put on the lights, and book it like an ambulance, you know, and tell people to get out of the way. That's how important this is, okay? And Jesus now, in the middle of this rescue mission, that time is of the essence, stops and asks a ridiculous question. Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see that the crowd is pressing around you and you say, who has touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She trusted She had faith, but she was afraid at this point. Why? Because in her mind, God has punished her for 12 years. She's been unclean. She's gone and sought help, and God hasn't seen fit to change her situation. And she knows she doesn't deserve to be in front of Jesus, and God was probably mad at her, and now she's stolen a miracle. And she comes in fear and trembling And she fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And if God were a mean God who was trying to smack her down and was looking to punish her, that's not what Jesus did. He says these amazingly comforting words to her Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. He doesn't call her woman. He doesn't call her sinner. He doesn't rebuke her. He comforts her in her fear and trembling, knowing that she she knew she didn't deserve to be in Jesus' presence. She knew And Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He calls her daughter. Now stop for a second and think for a minute from Jarius' point of view. Time is of the essence. And here is this woman who he probably knew because she lived in the same community he did. He knew that that was the woman who was, who's been unclean for 12 years. And he can just see this going on and going, oh my goodness, Uh, we've got to go, Jesus. And you're stopping for this woman. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her, takes the time to find her. She comes trembling and confesses the whole truth to him. And he doesn't rebuke her, doesn't send her away angry at her he calls her daughter and says your faith not your obedience your faith has made you well go in peace be healed of your disease and then the story takes a terrible turn and while he was still speaking there came from the ruler's house some who said your daughter is dead why trouble the teacher any farther But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jarius, the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. It's ridiculous, right? She's dead. She's gone. Jesus wasn't fast enough, Jesus wasn't quick enough. But Jesus got distracted by that woman who was unclean. It's too late. And Jesus doesn't say, be obedient, try harder. He says, do not fear, only believe. Trust me. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John and the brothers of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went to where the child was." Remember, the words are still ringing in his ear. Do not fear. Only believe. Put yourself in Jarius's shoes for a second. He's been rushing to get Jesus to his daughter. He's been rushing, trying to get there, trying to get there, and he's got word that he wasn't quick enough. Imagine being in his shoes as you walk into the room where your dead, 12-year-old daughter is lying. You knew she was sick and you see her lifeless, non-breathing body there, dead on the bed. And these words are still ringing in your ear. Do not fear. Only believe. Have faith in me. Trust. Do not fear. Only Believe. Taking the little girl by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amazing story. Amazing story of two daughters. And the pinnacle issue in both instances is faith and trust in Christ. The same faith that that unclean woman, the one with the bloody discharge for 12 years, Had was the same faith that Christ was calling Jarius to have. Do not fear, only believe. And it's the same faith that Christ calls us to. Understanding that all of us are sinners. All of us deserve hell. And yet... Christ is not calling us to try better, to be obedient, to somehow merit God's favor through our works. Instead, he's calling us to trust. Do not fear, only believe. And he is the one who releases us from our uncleanliness and releases us from death, releases us from the penalty of our sins, And by his stripes, we are healed. Absolutely one of my favorite stories. All right. We're going to now switch gears. Let me pull this up. Um, Let me see here. All right. We got to uh, pull up. Let me find the email where I got this link. (laughs) Somebody... Said, "Please, you got to do a show on Ted Haggard on Oprah. Oprah, hang on a second here. Ted Haggard on Oprah. Here, wait a second. There we go. All right, we're going to talk about this, and I think it's worth it's, it's worth watching, just because or listening to. We're not going to watch it. I'm going to watch it on radio. Roseboro, you're getting old." Anyway, we're going, to play, we're going to play the first couple of sections of this interview with Ted Haggard on Oprah. And everyone understands T- Ted Haggard is the fallen from grace uh, head of the National Association of Evangelicals. And the reason for his fall from grace, well, um, he had a homosexual um, tryst, <laughs> you could call it three-year-long tryst with a, a male prostitute and it's now come to light that uh, he also had you know, behaved sexually inappropriately with a member of the staff of the church that he was pastoring the church that he founded and uh you know this this all went down a couple of years ago and so uh now the uh you know he's basically making the talk show circuit they've done a, a documentary about this on HBO and he was on Oprah last night and uh, I think it's important that we we take a listen to um You know, what was said on Oprah, we won't be able to get to the whole thing, but we'll we'll play it so that you kind of get what's going on. And keep in mind here, um, our position as Christians regarding homosexuals is not that we are better than them, not that, that we... Why? Because we're all sinners. The Christian position is that homosexuality is a sin every bit as much as lying is a sin, as much as coveting is a sin, as much as stealing is a sin, as much as murder is a sin, as much as adultery is a sin, we are all in the same condition as somebody like Tad Haggard. We are sinners. And I think the, the pivotal part for me in the interview occurs in you know the, the second uh, seven minutes of it where he talks about uh, the fact that he's able to finally approach people not as righteous but as unrighteous and uh, as this plays out according to the gospel. And so, without any further ado, we're going to start listening in on Ted Haggard's appearance on Oprah last night.
5: The gay sex and drug scandal that took him down. Next. Pastor Ted Haggard was one of the most powerful and charismatic evangelical leaders in America. Millions of people were shocked when it was revealed he was also leading a secret
1: life. He had a relationship with me. We had gay sex.
5: On November 1st, 2006, Mike Jones, a former male prostitute, alleged in a radio interview that he and Pastor Ted had a three-year sexual relationship and that Haggard paid him in cash for sex and crystal meth. Ted immediately denied all the
1: allegations. Do
5: you know Mike Jones?
1: No, I do not know Mike Jones. Okay. Have you had a relationship with? I a, have not. Uh, any kind of gay I've, relationship? I've I've never had a gay relationship with anybody, and uh, I uh, I'm steady with my wife. I'm faithful to my wife. Have you ever done drugs? I've never done drugs ever. Eventually, Ted
5: admitted to sexual immorality and to buying drugs. He resigned from the church he founded and, according to Ted, exiled from his own community. Ted Haggard is here today for his first television interview since the scandal and to talk the, talk about the part of his life that he calls dark and repulsive. Welcome to the
1: show. Thank you. Thank you. So
5: when you see yourself on that tape um, denying it, what do you think? Do you?
1: Well, the first few days when that started to happen, I lied about it mm-hmm. because I was so ashamed. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that that dark area of my life that I'd worked so hard to keep secret and fight against Mm -hmm. was coming to the surface. Mm -hmm. And so to say it and to talk about it was so shameful and so shocking, even to me, Mm -hmm. much less to my wife, to my children, to the congregation, to the people that I loved so dearly. It was like I had this world of being... A pastor that loved the church so deeply and loved people so deeply. I mean, I loved it. Mm-hmm. But then I had this other thing inside of me that seemed so contrary to all of that. And so when that was forced to the surface, which now I'm so grateful for. But when that was forced to the surface, it probably took me two or three days of, gr- of gradually realizing this is an opportunity to be free. And this is an opportunity to tell. Did you realize it's an opportunity to be
5: free or did you realize, listen, I'm stuck. The guy has the phone call recorded.
1: Oh, some of both. I'm sure some of both. Yeah. Then the month before Mike Jones spoke out, I was up at our prayer and fasting center and I laid on the floor and I said, oh, God, never again, never again, never again. You know, those types of prayers. I'll never do that again. Yeah. And I felt on the inside of me a sinister voice say, all hell will break loose on you because of this. Then the, it was two weeks later after that, so something like that, that this happened. And when this happened, my Jones came the, forward. That the, the, right, the scandal happened, the crisis. But happened.
5: you were feeling, and the reason why you were having that prayer, Ted, is because mm-hmm. you were seeing him
1: regularly. Because it was this... the it was the internal war inside of me, and and I knew that my sexuality was confusing. I knew it was complex. But I also knew that because of the position that I was in, mm-hmm. that when I had tried to talk about this to one degree or another, Two there points. was a, there was a major reaction. Well, at one time I spoke to one of the Christian leaders mm-hmm. and he said, you just need to work more at the church, mm-hmm. be more busy at the church. And so I, I kept trying to deal with it in within when, spiritual circles so when and that you, didn't work when out. when you said you uh, spoke to one of the spiritual leaders, you said what? I'm having these... I inc- told him I was having... Uh, homosexual temptations and, mm. and thoughts like that. And I needed to process through it. What should I do? And, you think, and do you think you're gay? No, I don't think I'm gay. I did wonder about that. After this crisis, when I went to therapy, I said, I need to know, am I gay? Am I straight? Am I bi? What am I? And my first therapist said, you are a heterosexual with homosexual attachments. So we processed through that. I wasn't sure what that meant. Then we went through... A, an, an, nor am I. Yeah. <laughs> nor is the exactly. audience. Nor is, yeah. Certainly, exactly. nor are the gay people watching. Well.
0: Now, keep in mind, on Oprah's Spirituality 101 show, you had Ed Bacon of the Episcopal Church basically declaring the homosexuality is a gift from God. So there's what's going on behind Oprah's questions... Is uh, whether or not this is sinful behavior or what you know? She the, the, this is provocative in the sense that uh, here we've got a gay guy. And well, uh, sorry, we got Ted Haggard, who is basically caught having homosexual relationships and saying that he's not gay. To Oprah, Oprah is basically saying, "No, no, 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 you're gay. You're just not." coming to grips with it and you're you're talking in a way you know talking around the point that's what's rattling around behind this but let's continue out yes. well, yeah
1: yeah and it is i i do believe i don't fit into the normal boxes i do think there are complexities mm-hmm. associated with some people's sexuality i don't know about it i would agree with you yeah it, but but it wasn't it just wasn't as simple as i wanted it to be because yeah because i was so deeply in love with my wife m so deeply in love with my wife, our intimate relationship is is wonderful and very satisfying. But I had this other thing going on inside of me, too.
5: And how and, long had that been going on? How long had you been fighting I, those urges? I think all of my adult life. You say on the HBO documentary that seventh grade you had a same-sex
1: relationship? Well, or? It, it, that's exactly right. It, it was, it was seventh-grade boys playing around. Okay. It wasn't serious. It was playing around. Mm-hmm. In the second grade, one of my dad's employees had sex with me. But it wasn't like abusive or violent or anything like that. And uh, that guy just disappeared. I think my dad found Well, out oftentimes, of as you know, as a, as a pastor and having
5: experienced it yourself, oftentimes sexual abuse mm-hmm. um, isn't violent. That's the, that's the mistake right. a lot of people make is that right. they think it's violent and traumatic.
1: A really good sexual molester is going to make it pleasurable. That's exactly what happened to me. And what was interesting, see, I never saw it as abuse, even as an adult man. Right. But isn't the real issue what you were
5: feeling? Isn't the real issue that you were in denial of your
1: sexual attraction to men? Well, what was happening then? We were a good farm Presbyterian family. Okay. You know, we went to church on Sundays. My dad's a presbyter. My mom leads a circle prayer meeting. And so you don't have those and kinds of thoughts. So we don't have that. And, and I think that happened. And I thank God, though, that in this process, I am where I am now. And, and that accusation and the scandal had, had a lot to do with that. The suffering of it, the abandonment of it, the pain of it, those things. Really helped me get where I needed to be. Okay. And and so I'm grateful for that. So, okay, we're going to
5: come back and find out where are you now? Okay. Okay, where are you now? We'll be back in a moment.
0: All right, we're going to move on to the second part of this here. And I think this is kind of where the important stuff is talked about as far as the gospel is concerned. Uh, and so you, you listen to this story, and you know, you, again, as Christians, we are not more righteous than Ted Haggard. And any of you who think that you are, you do not understand the depth of your sin. So we affirm the truth of Scripture that homosexuality is a sin, and we affirm also that all of us are sinners, guilty before God, deserving of his wrath deserving deserving of his temporal and eternal punishments we are not more righteous than him the problem is he was living a double life and the type of evangelicalism he was subscribing to was very pietistic and that's where the real problems come in the fact that he was claiming to be righteous at the same time he was he knew he was a sinner. We continue.
5: Sex and drug scandal that took
1: him down. Next. We shouldn't be deceitful. We shouldn't intentionally mislead people. We shouldn't appear to be one thing and actually be another. And if there's something that you're thinking of doing that you would want to keep secret, simply don't
0: do it. it- okay, got to stop there. Listen to this preaching. He's talking about having a double life, and what's the solution? Simply don't do it? That is indicative of the type of message, the legalism, the pharisaicalism, the pietism that he was, the brand of pietism that he has bought into. The Christian message is not simply don't do it. It's confess your sins and receive the forgiveness of Christ. Christ died for that sin. Believe it or not, the way you get overcome sin, so to speak, is by confessing it, by receiving the forgiveness of sins, okay? This is a message that really creates despair in a lot of people and will create people who have double lives. I claim to be righteous and tell everyone to be holy and righteous, and yet I have this dirty little secret in my closet. Confess the dirty little secret in your closet and Receive the forgiveness of sins because Christ died for those dirty little secrets in your closet.
1: If you need to go somewhere in the middle of the night and you want to keep it a secret and hope nobody ever knows, don't go there. If you'll notice, on the front page of the newspaper, every single day, there's somebody's secret. It was
5: in 1997. Right. This broke in 2006. Right. In 1997, were you talking about yourself? Were you engaged in sexual activity with men?
1: The struggle was going on. Okay. And when I was saying things like that, see, one of my great themes in ministry was there's no such thing as a secret. Mm -hmm. Jesus says what's done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. I am the living proof of that. So
5: you always knew then that this was going to come out into the light.
1: I was desperately praying and hoping that God would do a miracle in me and I would be okay before I embarrassed my family and my friends.
5: But the time that you laid down in the church and you were the fasting and praying. Do whatever and whatever Do whatever it takes. You were saying to God. I
1: knew. Do whatever it takes to reveal this. Whatever. Whatever it takes to heal me. To heal me. And you. I knew in that healing process I'd watched enough that it could cost me everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought my wife would divorce me. I thought my children would leave me. I thought the church would too. And a portion of that came true. But the part, part about my family did not. My family responded in a way that rescued me. I think I would have killed myself after, or during and after this scandal. Mm-hmm. I would have died mm-hmm. if my wife and my children wouldn't have made the decision they made. To stay with you. To stay. I even told Gail. I said, Gail, I am so toxic. Gail, you're what? I am poisonous. I said, you need to divorce me. And she turned to me and she said, I am not going to divorce you, Ted Haggard. And then we started the process of talking openly and plainly because I so wanted to be a good husband and I wanted to be a good man. But I wasn't. You
5: are in such denial yourself about what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, I I, I certainly gave that public impression.
5: Yes. And that you are, you know, you represent so many people throughout the world who are gay. Yeah. Or, as you say, have these complexities and are mm-hmm. inclined to, uh, to, 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 to want to have same-sex relationships and who are tortured. Yes.
1: Tortured by yes. it.
5: Yeah. Why, in the in this whole process, could you just not make
1: peace with that? I couldn't. Uh, Why make, couldn't you just make uh, peace with this it, is who I am? I think it was
0: probably a combination. Okay, listen to her. She's basically trying to get him to say, listen, just come to grips. Just say you're gay and admit that, that it's okay. And and maybe the way of Ed Bacon uh, uh, believe that being gay is a gift from God. And he's not doing that because he understands God's law. And he understands, listen, these are the confessions of a man who understands he's a sinner. These are the types of confessions that we must all come to grips with ourselves because all of us sin
1: of what I wanted to be the ideal of what I, I wanted to be a great husband yes but how can you deny dad. I'm sorry I didn't mean to yeah. hit you but, yeah. how can, <laughs> but, but how can you but how can you Ted
5: how, I, know, how, I know But how can you, de, how can you deny you. who you are what you are
1: because as a Christian I believe that I become a new man in Christ and I believe and so you don't believe that Christ accepts any homo
5: accepts homosexuals I was hoping for inner transformation But do you believe that Christ
1: accepts homosexuals?
0: I believe Christ accepts everybody. Okay. Okay, got to be careful here. Yes, Christ accepts everybody in the sense Christ died for the sins of the world. He is offering mercy and forgiveness to heterosexuals, to homosexuals, to whatever perverse other form of sexual deviancy that you can come up with he's offering mercy and forgiveness to murderers to adulterers to liars to cheaters to stealers to thieves jesus christ died for all of those sins including the sin of homosexuality the clarion call of christianity and the gospel to all sinners of all stripes and variety is repent and believe the good news that Christ died for your sins. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus atoned for that sin too.
1: And and I know it. I have the proof now because when I was at my lowest point, When I couldn't pray, I couldn't read the scriptures. I couldn't seek him anymore. He came after me and the scripture came alive to me, Oprah, for the first time in a dramatic way. Jesus came for the unrighteous, not the righteous.
0: That's right. Jesus came for the sinner, not the righteous. I think that's the golden quote from this interview. Christ came for the unrighteous. He came for the sinners. If you think you're righteous... You think you're pulling it off that somehow God owes you a favor because you're so special on the morality scale? You need to see yourself as Ted Haggard sees himself as unrighteous. Because when you look at the Ten Commandments, when I look at the Ten Commandments, what I see coming back in the mirror of God's law is not somebody who's righteous, somebody who loves God, and somebody who's a decent guy. I see a sinner.
1: And I qualify. It's the first time in my life that I haven't had these wars going on. And the difference is I've had two years of open process where I, where I don't have people looking at me as a leader. I'm just a guy. Okay. And so I'm an insurance So But do salesman. you
5: allow yourself then to have the sexual thoughts about men? I do men have
1: sexual thoughts. About men? Yes. And you allow yourself to have but that. But they're not compulsive anymore. Okay. And I have temptations sometimes, but they're not compulsive. Prior to this, they, they had grown into a compulsion that to I worked with, with. To act on to it. To act on it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I had become something that was an ideal. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to fulfill it. I wanted you wanted to be the perfect. I wanted I just wanted to be faithful to my wife. Uh-huh. I wanted to be faithful to the wonderful people that come to New Life Church. I wanted to be. But faithful you knew you weren't being. But you but knew I, you weren't being. But I believed in miracles. See, and so I would say, if I would pray and fast one more time, that would.
0: Trying to earn the miracle here. Trying to earn it.
1: Keep you from going. To, I could get it, yeah. and I would get strength. Well, that would
5: keep you from going to seek out yeah, male exactly. prostitutes. Exactly, or or to to buy drugs. Yeah. And so yes and you said in that tape that you which didn't make any
1: sense to me. So were you No, not, I was lying. Okay, the, you're lying. Okay. The, yeah. the, okay, so a friend flew us to Florida to hide us. All
0: right. We're going to end right there. I think you got the flavor of what happened. And you know, I'm going to give props to uh Ted Haggard in this sense. He confesses that what he did is a sin. And what I hear in his interview is really at the heart of a lot of this is this, this bifurcated life that came about as a result of the fact that he didn't see himself as unrighteous, but was trying to present himself as some kind of a righteous person who was pulling it off because he wanted all of this, yet he knew that inside he was lying. Um, Unfortunately, I've seen this happen in other people's lives, and it, it's just Folks, pietism and a misunderstanding of God's law and what it's for and a lack of understanding of the gospel is what drives these types of bifurcated lives. It creates them. Christ is calling all of us in our deepest, darkest sins to come to him as unrighteous sinners, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, And trusting in his forgiveness for our sins. The church is not supposed to be a place of gymnasium for the righteous to be lifting weights. It literally is a sick house full of sinners there to receive from Christ the forgiveness of sins. That's why we worship Christ and not ourselves. And if you go to a church where you have people who think that they're somehow pulling off the law and saying, look at me and how righteous I am and just apply these three simple steps and you too can be righteous like me, those are people who don't even understand what the law is for. The purpose of the law is really to show you your need for a savior. And that's how we look at homosexuals, how we look at heterosexuals who are committing adultery or fornicating or caught up in any kind of sexual deviancy. We are all beggars. We are all sinners. We are all on the same level. And the message of the gospel is good news. God is offering full and complete pardon, completely undeserved, canceling of all of your debts to him, canceling of all of your sins and he will remember them no more because he atoned for them himself on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago one Friday afternoon on the eve of the Passover God in human flesh as your substitute on the cross for your sins and mine even the sins of homosexuality even the sin of gossip. We are now at the end of our program today. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and would like to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we need your help in order to pay our bills so that we can continue bringing you this important radio outreach. If you would like to support us, you can do so a couple of ways. You can visit us at fightingforthefaith.com And click on the Donate button, or send a check to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 791, San Juan, Capistrano, California, zip code 92693. Until tomorrow, may God bless you.